Please stand as we read together God's Word from Revelation chapter 14. I'm going to read the first five verses, and I'll read the remainder of the text as we sort of come to it this morning. This is the Word of the Lord. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with Him 144,000 who had His name and His Father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as firstfruits for God and the Lamb. And in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. Can we pray with me? Father, thank You this morning for Your Word. The privilege to hear it, to, to study it, to sit under it. And we pray now that your Spirit would bless the hearing of your Word and help us not only to be the hearers of it, but to obey it. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. As we continue our study in the book of Revelation, I, I want to exhort us again just to, um, to, to stay out of the weeds uh, in this morning, or in another way to put it, uh, to not lose sight of the forest for the trees, or the way another author stated the same idea, to recognize that in the book of Revelation, the sum is greater than the parts. And so uh, we have been seeing in 14 chapters, hopefully by now, uh, we've come to recognize that the, the main theme of the book of Revelation is about the sovereignty of God in all things. And because of that sovereignty, the certainty of the judgment of sin and the certainty of the salvation of a redeemed people for God's glory. In the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at, at various parts of God's sovereign plan unfolding. For example, in chapter 11, we saw a mention of the crucifixion, the resurrection, and the ascension. In chapter 12, we saw imagery of the birth, the incarnation of Christ and the church, His body. Last week, we saw a picture of the authentic or the real God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we're exhorted not to follow counterfeits of the dragon and the first beast and the second beast. And today sort of continues that thread with the subject of the final judgment of the wicked and the preservation of the church. And so as we dive into this chapter, the first five verses are a picture of the Lamb of God and His people. We've seen the Lamb 
mentioned before in the book of Revelation. It's an interesting thing to note that, uh, that Christ pictured as a lamb in Scripture is sort of rare outside of the book of Revelation. Uh, we see it first introduced in the Old Testament that Christ would be like a lamb led to slaughter in Isaiah 53. John the Baptist picks it up in John chapter 1 where he declares upon seeing uh, Jesus walking toward him in the wilderness while he's baptizing, he declares, behold the Lamb of God. And then he uses that phrase again. But other than that, all of the other occurrences of Christ as a Lamb, almost 30 of them are in the book of Revelation. And we have seen the 144,000 before as well. They are the church. Specifically here, the church in heaven, in Mount Zion, and the church in its fullness. In other words, not a single part of that body missing. The perfection of that number, 144,000. And here we get a description of that church. The redeemed church with the Lamb in heaven. We see firstly that they are owned by God. That they are marked with His name. Uh, my mother used to, much to my chagrin, write my name on every piece of clothing I ever wore so that it would not be lost or maybe so I would never forget my name. I don't know which, but everything was labeled so that it was belonging and owned by me. And, and that is the imagery here of being uh, the people who bear the name of God on them. Now, that imagery begins all the way back in Exodus 28 with Aaron, the high priest, where it says that it was written on a, on a plate and put on his forehead, holy to the Lord, set apart to the Lord. And he was to stand for the people of God as his people. And so we see this, this ownership of God. They are his people. They are called, they are bought, and they are protected by God. We also see in verses 2 and 3 that they worship the Lord. There's a picture here of uh, harps. You know, the, the old um, Looney Tunes picture, you know, of, of the harp playing. Of, uh, think of, uh, uh, what was it, Tom and Jerry as well. And Tom would uh, go through a tragic death and you'd see Tom playing a harp. That's where this imagery perhaps comes from, but has nothing to do with what the Scriptures are teaching here. Uh, I've only ever heard a harp one time. And I can tell you this, when I heard it, it didn't sound to me like roaring waters or thunder. So why the connection here of harps that sound like that? Let me tell you what I think it's getting at. Some of us here in this room, we have a hard time hearing on a Sunday morning, don't we? I mean, it, it echoes and the noise and the music sort of bounces around and you sort of hear half of what the preacher says and some of it's missed and, and, and there's sort of a, a lacking in what we hear here. I remember once I got a gift of a pair of noise-canceling earbuds, a thing of beauty. If you've owned these, you put them on and it just cancels all the other noise out there and it is like suddenly you hear in a way you've never heard before. A fullness of hearing. So for those of you who are going to miss some of what I say this morning just because of bad acoustics or, or poor hearing, 
Can you imagine a day when you will hear the fullness and the entirety of everything? That will be the case of the redeemed. I remember hearing that harp playing and it filled the room. You could just close your eyes and it was sort of all you could hear. And what they're hearing is this worship of a new song. I thought about that new song. You know, as you think about it this way, in heaven there aren't very many things that you could call new, right? There's, there's no renovations that go on. There's not like new this or new that. What is new in heaven? Well, the only thing I could think of that was new was the people. A new people sing a new song. A people with a new heart that are brought in by the Lord into His presence in His throne room, gathered together with the angelic beings and the cherubim and, and the elders, are the new people singing the new song. And so they worship Him. And they follow the Lamb. They're owned by God. They worship the Lord. They follow the Lamb. And this is stated in a negative way and a positive way. Negatively, it says that they follow the Lamb by not defiling themselves. And we can, you can get buried into the realm of, well, what is it talking about here? What does it mean, virgins and who is in? But, but I think what it's getting at in the passage is they don't follow after all of the counterfeits we saw last Sunday. The false promises of power, of, of signs, of, of, uh, of significance, the, the false promises of life. They don't follow those things. They don't give themselves to them, but rather they follow the Lamb wherever He goes. And this idea of following means to be in the way of, not like in front of and getting run over by a truck, but to follow in the way of something. Drafting, if you're a NASCAR fan, the idea of drafting and pulling in behind something and, and following it so that it sort of draws you along with it. These are the ones who follow along with the Lamb. They're set apart, called by God, and they follow Him in obedience. And then lastly, they're described this way, that they persevere in the truth in verse 5. There's no lie found in them, for they are blameless. I only know of one person that can actually ever be said of. Christ. First Peter reminds us of that where it says that there was no lie, no deceit found in him. He was perfect. And, and so here's a picture of that they are made into, restored into, renewed into the image of Christ. And as he had no lie, as he was blameless before the Lord in his perfect righteousness, so too are they. And that's a picture of the redeemed. And, and there's a reason this is being shared. We'll get to it in a little bit. But it's a positive encouragement, a motivation, an exhortation to us of why we are to live a certain way. Because this is the hope of what is being promised to us in Christ that one day will be our possession. One day we will be completely owned by the Lord in His presence, His people. 
We will worship him and we will actually hear the entire worship service. That we will be uh, drawn into following after Christ and only follow him wherever he goes. There won't be the experience of, of like sheep wandering in our own ways. And we will be kept and preserved for Christ. But first, there's something else that gets shared, and it's in verses 6 through 11. Let me read these verses. And then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give Him glory, because the hour of His judgment has come, and worship Him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Another angel, a second, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And they have no rest, day or night. These worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. We see in the whole chapter 14 a total of six angels. In these verses we see the first three. And they are bringing to us a description of the nature of God's wrath. Each comes forth, says something, and and it is sort of a, a lesson on some aspect of the wrath of God. The first angel comes out in verses 6 and 7, and what we see here is that the wrath of God is deserved. It's an interesting verse. When you dig into the text of this verse, it's an interesting verse because this angel comes forth with an eternal gospel to proclaim. And what's interesting is this is the only occurrence of the word gospel in all of John's writings. It's also the only occurrence, uh, or one of only a handful of occurrences that don't have the definite article. In other words, it's not talking about the gospel, but a gospel. The other occurrences are where Paul exhorts the church in Galatia to beware of another gospel. Another interesting fact here is that this gospel is preached by angels, and the scriptures never talk of the angels preaching the gospel. It's also called eternal. The only time in Scripture where that description is given to the gospel. And the content of it seems a little off too. The content of that gospel given in verse 7 is, fear God, glorify Him, and worship Him. There's no mention of repentance. There's no mention of Christ. And so what's going on here? Well, it could be one of two things. It, it could be that this angel is proclaiming the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, and calling uh, us and calling the earth, those who dwell on the earth, to repent and believe in Christ. That could be one of the meanings. The other meaning could be this, that, that and I'll, I'll phrase it this way, that there are truths that are true but don't save. 
Let me say that again. There are truths that are true, but they don't save. This morning in the Westminster Confession class, we talked about general revelation. The revelation of the nature of humanity, our consciences of creation, of what God has made and all we see around us. The, the uh, testimony of providence, of seeing God's hand in creation. All are true. All speak forth about God, but none of them are true unto salvation. Therefore, God gave the Scriptures to reveal those things, Christ and His finished work on the cross. And so what this might be referring to is this declaration that all are under the wrath of God. Who fears God? There are none, Romans says, who fear God. Who is there that glorifies the Lord? There is none. We all thieve away the glory of God for ourselves. Who worships the Lord as He ought be worshipped? None. Not even this morning. Our worship this morning is tainted by our sin. We ought not fool ourselves that the worship of Mercy Presbyterian is perfect and acceptable to God outside of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's only that we're in Christ that we stand before the Lord today and worship Him. And so this might be otherwise a declaration that all are condemned. This angel declares these truths that leave men without excuse. Secondly, in verse 8, the, God, the wrath of God is certain. <clears throat> this declaration, fallen, fallen is Babylon. Uh, that, that's a prophetic perfect is what they call it, meaning something that is not yet true but is absolutely so certain you can speak of it as if it's already happened. In other words, Babylon hasn't fallen yet. It, it will fall in the in the coming of Christ and His return. But it is so certain that it can be spoken of with the double statement of fallen, fallen, absolutely, truly fallen, is Babylon. Now, we're not going to get into Babylon. It comes up. This is the first mention of Babylon in the book of Revelation, but it will be in the next three chapters, and we will see a picture of it and unfold that. But, but I'm going to just state it, it. It speaks of evil. In the minds of a Jew, when you heard of Babylon, you just thought of evil. Those counterfeits we looked at last Sunday. The, and it speaks here of the power of Babylon as being a subtle and a seductive temptation unto sin. Using the imagery of, of drink and drunkenness. Right? You don't get drunk by having one sip and then staggering everywhere. But drunkenness is sort of a thing that gradually kind of sneaks up. And, and it lays out here that that's what evil is like in the world. If evil were obvious, and if evil uh, instantly had the negative consequences that it deserves, it would have far few takers, wouldn't it? The picture here is that sin is subtle and sinister and subversive. But it has fallen, and God's wrath is certain upon it. And then thirdly, God's wrath is upon all who follow the beast. Last week, we saw two beasts, so immediately the question is, which beast are we talking about here? Some think it's the first beast because the context right in chapter 14 is about the lamb, right? And the first beast was the, the false version of the son. And so it would make sense that the lamb of chapter 14, verse 1 through 5, with his people, here it's speaking of the first beast. 
But then it also goes and says that the characteristic here is of receiving the mark of the beast, and that was what chapter 13 said of the second beast. And so you might ask the question, well, which is it, the first beast or the second beast? And my answer would be yes. Yes, the beast. And, and all that both of them represent, false, counterfeit versions of God's person and God's work. The wrath that comes is described here, full strength, right? Full strength as opposed to the drunkenness that comes by sin, which is this gradual, uh, the full strength, undiluted strength of God's wrath. Where sin overpromises and underdelivers, God never promises and doesn't deliver. And so when God says that he will judge all sin of all men, he will. And then there's this phrase of torment or agony, a very subjective word in the Greek, meaning a felt agony, a torturous feeling. It's even amplified by the statements of fire and sulfur, or some translations will say brimstone. Uh, and I thought, I read one helpful thing on that is that, well, fire just sort of consumes but you know what's worse than being like in a fire? Like if I was working, uh, putting a fire in my fire pit and I stuck my hand in the fire, I could pull my hand out and I would be okay. But sulfur is sort of that burning, which is sort of like when something covers you. And it doesn't matter if you pull your hand out. It continues to burn. The constantness, the inescapability and it's forever and ever, day and night, eternal, ceaseless. And it's described here as not having any rest. Something new in my life as I get older has been to struggle with restless leg syndrome at night. It, drives, it drove me crazy. I see some heads nodding and you know what I'm talking about. And it's not just at night. Like if I go into a theater or a show or a play, it's so I just can't sit still. Amy was cutting my hair last night and, and I'm sitting in the kitchen and I'm just having to stretch my legs out. It's driving me batty. This feeling, this antsy feeling that I couldn't get comfortable in my, with my legs. And, and that's sort of the picture here is there's no rest. A conscious, torturous eternal, constant, total degree of wrath. R.C. Sproul, when he spoke about uh, a taught on hell, would say this, that the symbolism undersells the reality. In other words, I could sell as, I could preach a sermon this morning, hell, hell, fire, and brimstone, and give you the worst picture, absolutely, of hell, and it would still come far short of the reality. But this is a description. So we've seen some positive motivations. And now we've seen some negative motivations. What are they motivating us for? That's what we read in verses 12 to 13. Notice the shift. We shift here from the saints in heaven back to the saints on earth. Us. Here is the call for endurance of the saints. Those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow them. You see the shift away from those in heaven 
the 144,000 now, to those who are on earth and at some point in time, future to them, will die in the Lord. That's us. And what is the call for them? It's for endurance. For endurance. The final time of seven uses of this word, hupomone, meaning to endure in the book of Revelation. It means to stay under something. Hypo, like hypodermic, under the skin. And, and uh, meno, which is the idea to remain or stay. And they are the ones who keep the commandments of God. That, that word keep means to guard, to be diligently and faithful about keeping, like if you were posted a guard. I remember um, going once on a snipe hunt. Ever been on a snipe hunt? It's not a real thing. I didn't know it at the time. We were going to Florida from Michigan. We stopped in Tennessee overnight, and my stepdad and my best friend from high school decided to prank us with a snipe hunt. They told us about these fictitious little birds that existed out in the woods that you could catch at night. And so they took my brother and I out into the woods of Tennessee uh, and left us in a field with some corrugated iron that we had found and put in a V-shape. And both of us were standing at the end of the funnel of a V with pillowcases waiting for them to go around the field and rustle up the snipes that would come running over the hill, down into the gully, into the corrugated iron, and bam, into the pillows. And they told us that, and then they went back to the lodge and had hot chocolate and sat by the fire, and we were sitting out in the middle of a January freezing cold Tennessee woods holding pillowcases. But I tell you what, we were diligent. We, I mean, I have never sat still in the woods so long holding a pillowcase, waiting, listening for every noise. Are they coming? Knowing that they were going to go around and do this. I was keeping the commandments that I had been given. That's what this word means. To remain, to stay under, and in that case, the ludicrous instructions of my dad, uh, my stepdad, and my friend. But we are called to remain under and diligent to the commands of God while we await his return. That's our call. And then we're also called in verse 13 to be fruitful, that they would rest from their labors, their deeds. Follow them. You know, a tree is known by its fruit. And our deeds will follow us. That same word of following Jesus, in the way of. That the works that we do on earth, they don't earn our salvation, but they reflect it and they follow us as evidences of a vibrant, God-given faith into heaven. And whereas, notice the parallel, no, there's no rest for the wicked, but notice here that there's rest for the redeemed. And I also want to point out one other thing about these two verses that ought not go unnoticed. We don't do this alone. The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are in verses 12 and 13, specifically verse 13. Look at this. Write this, or the voice from heaven saying, now the voice from heaven is the Lamb. Christ, blessed are those who die in the Lord, the Father, from now on. And then the Spirit chimes in and says, indeed. Indeed, it's true, bringing an assurance. 
What you see is the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are right there with the people of God on earth, bringing about that perseverance as we diligently keep the Word of God and wait His return. Verse 14 through 20 goes on to talk about the actual wrath of God. Then I looked and behold a white cloud and seated on the cloud one like the Son of Man with a golden crown on His head and a sharp sickle in His hand. And another angel came out of the temple calling with a loud voice to Him who sat on the cloud. Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. And so he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. And then another angel came out of the temple in heaven. He too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire. And he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, Put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. And so the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadiums. The second three angels talk about the actual coming of the wrath of God. The first angel says it's like a harvest, like reaping. The imagery of reaping in the Old Testament was used both ways, both for judgment and for salvation. And the context is sort of what told us which it was. And in this passage, these last verses, we actually have two sort of separate reapings. And there's lots of discussion about what all that is about. My answer is, I don't know. I I don't have a final answer for you. All I can note is this. The first reaping of the fourth angel, there's no statement of judgment after the reaping. It just says that the harvest is brought in, and then it doesn't have anything about a wine press or or a a sifting of it. It just says simply that the sickle was put in and the harvest was brought in. You see, for example, in the Scripture in the New Testament, some of the positive statements about the idea of a harvest. The harvest is plentiful, the laborers are few. Pray, therefore, for the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers. And that's a positive picture, to go out. We're not called to go out and to condemn people. We're called to go out and preach the gospel that is then brought to harvest or to reap the redeemed into the kingdom of God. So there's a harvest picture here. There's also a picture of a wine press. Unlike reaping, a wine press is a symbol only of judgment. There, there are not good images of a wine press. Uh, the picture here is of a total of all being under that judgment, of, of it being irreversible. I remember we used to love to go to a, a cedar or cider mill in the fall in Michigan. And they would, this one had this huge press, and they put all the apples in, thousands of apples, and it just slowly cranked down, and all the cider came out. And you would get your, your cake donut, which was still warm, and your cider, and it was a feast. And just loved it. But at the end, when they pulled the press up, there was nothing left of those apples. They were completely crushed the totality of it, the irreversibility of it. 
And this, it says, is going to be done in the, uh, that it's a personal. Notice it says trodden in the wine press. This isn't like a wine press that was cranked like the one in the cedar, the cider mill we went to. This is one where uh, if you go back and look in Isaiah 63, it will say that the Lord himself would tread the wine press alone. Now there, the context is different in that it's talking about he is going to take the penalty of the wrath of God alone for God's people. But here he is pictured as this personal judge coming. And then lastly, the imagery of fire, the, the sixth angel. We've seen this angel before, so I won't say much about it, but it's the idea of the, the prayers of the saints, the altar of incense. And this angel has authority over that and brings into the judgment of God. Uh, it is a response to the prayers and the cries of the saints who have cried out, How long, O Lord, how long? So let me close with this. The Scripture passage, the verses that sit at the center of what Mercy Prez is all about, speak to these same things. Let me show you what I mean. And I'll close with this, just letting God's Word speak for itself and us to think about how this ought to motivate and encourage us to endure diligently and fruitfully until the Lord's return. 1 Peter 2, 9 through 12. But you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. In those words, we see the idea of being called, of being protected, of, of worshiping the Lord and serving him as a priesthood, of persevering and proclaiming the good news. Verse 10, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. The lesson's inverted here, but the idea is that we are those who have received mercy, implying we deserved wrath. We deserved the wrath of God, which we saw in the passage this morning. Verses 11 and 12, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God. Here we see the call to endure and the call to be fruitful and the benefit of that fruitfulness to our proclaiming and witnessing to Christ. And then lastly, the very last phrase, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. In that last phrase, we see the reality that an hour is coming. It comes only at the time that the Lord knows, but it is known. And it comes, and when it comes, it will be that total pouring out of the wrath of God righteously upon all sin. It'll be the day that the righteous are, harvest, are harvested and reaped and raised to eternal life. It'll be the day that the wicked, apart from Christ, will be raised to condemnation. You pray with me. Father, we thank you for mercy, the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ, who 
for us and for our sins bore the wrath of God in its fullness on the cross. That he was crucified outside the city, trodden. That it was his blood that was shed in our place. And this was to buy us, his precious blood, buying us to be your people. To love you, to follow you, to worship you, to make you known. And Father, we would pray as those who know you here on earth that you would help us to endure, to remain faithful, to remain in Christ, to bear fruit that, not that it would attract people to us, but that people would see that fruit and glorify you, our Father in heaven. Thank you for this high and holy call. We ask that you would remind us that it is not something we do alone, but that we do it in Christ, that we do it because of your call, Father, and we do it with the comfort and the strength and the assurance of the Spirit. And so we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.